Welcome to Or Whatever Movies. I'm your co-host, Iris, and I am here with my older brother, Wesley. Today, we are talking about 1996's When We Were Kings, about the legendary Rumble in the Jungle, Rumble in the Jungle, 1974. Zaire, 1974. I want one of those t-shirts. Yeah? I want one of those vintage Zaire 1974 t-shirts. So this was kind of like, it was weird. It was like a hybrid. It was like Woodstock with boxing. This film started out as a concert documentary about James Brown and B.B. King and all these people being in Kinshasa. Like they wanted it to be a concert doc and then they shoehorned the fight in? No, well, no. The purpose of all this footage being shot was to have a concert documentary and, uh, the concert itself was delayed because George Foreman got that cut over his eye from his sparring partner. So the filmmakers, or no, the crew just started following around Muhammad Ali and George Foreman leading up to the fight because that was definitely one of the cornerstones of this of this festival. It was actually called the festival in uh, in Zaire. You know, they were all down there and ready to film. So let's film the boxing stuff too. And then it became the primary thrust of the film. It's almost as much a musical political documentary as it is a sports documentary yep and specifically an african-american cultural moment which i don't really have it didn't really have a place in my history sort of growing up until i discovered this film i mean you had read malcolm x's biography yep and you obviously had dad's context like dad's coming of age context well, I, yeah, it's not like I didn't have any black history whatsoever. It's just these cultural milestones and how much they really meant. I mean, you read about all the historical significance of Martin Luther King, Malcolm X, uh, Watts riots, all that kind of stuff. But it's sort of a celebration, a cultural milestone and a celebration in this way that I guess could be compared to Woodstock. This sort of grandiosity of this event, which granted happened a couple of years before I was born, was still, it seemed like a major deal, even though it wasn't even in, the, in, uh, in America. Right, yeah. It was a major deal. Yeah, so 1996, this won the Best Documentary Feature Oscar. Yep. It was really well done. Editorially, you can tell right off the bat that this is going to be a quality piece of filmmaking. They really successfully weaved all the elements that we were talking about earlier without too much talking head. And my only qualm with their use of archival, which was really deft, is that there were some repeat shots. Yeah, I didn't know. I don't remember that. The witch or the, um, what do they call her? The Oh, yeah, um, the succubus. Yeah, the succubus. The chick who's like. <laughs> so I know Marion Makeba was a big part of this. Definitely a very famous African musician. And uh, I wonder how she feels about being associated continuously as the succubus in this movie. <laughs> <laughs> right? Like it was just a visual that kind of conveyed that eerie sense of a of a witch. She had those kind of glary eyes. And I mean, was that just some African form of art? Yeah, no, it was definitely performance art. So there was that. And then there was a couple of, um, I guess it kind of fits into the political aspect of the documentary, but there was a lot of really great insight into the indigenous culture. 
in uh-huh. Zaire. And that was paralleled really well with some of the music and leading up to the fighting scenes. Definitely convincing and conveying a mood, right? An atmosphere of this movie? Yeah, total energy. It, it felt like a, an experience to behold, like a really special experience to have had. And they almost gave us like a portal into it. Especially one that's a distinctly non-American experience, except for the two American boxers. Well, I guess the American musicians too. But uh, it didn't feel like a, mo- a modern day boxing spectacle because of how immersed everything was in the culture. Yeah, kind of inseparable from that. What kind of cultural statement was George Foreman making with that jean suit? It was a 70s cultural statement for sure. Down all the way down to the hat, right? The hat and shirt optional. I mean, James Brown had the same thing, right? He had like a suede vest or something on. Yeah, like a backless frontless jumpsuit. Yeah. <laughs> only uh, only BB King had the good sense to wear a suit. BB <laughs> King and uh, Mobutu, the the dictator. Yeah, he was he was very suave, Mobutu with his with his walking stick and his like jauntily cocked animal print sailor hat (laughs) but george foreman pretty jaunty himself he was only 23 years old at the time or 22 really young guy up and coming boxer and yeah but i think it was that was just kind of the swagger of the time right comparable to to floyd mayweather today and all the bling and all the cars and things george foreman just he had the style and he had the the outfit and he could wear whatever silly thing he wanted because he was ultra rich and famous and young and brought his dog to africa and things what a formidable physical figure he was at 23 so he was like the young champ versus the old underdog was that yeah the setup the speculation obviously in the movie was that muhammad ali had come to the end of his career and he might go out with a bang with the young towering george foreman putting him into the ground but george foreman was the was the defending champion right so it was like his title to lose right so in actuality ali didn't really have anything on the line just a legacy except i guess they were trying to yeah his legacy and his career Yeah, because Ali had put down a lot of great fighters. There's iconic images and things, but he was kind of coming to the end. And uh, as an older guy coming and facing, you know, someone so imposing looking, it didn't look didn't look great. It It was going to be an ignominious end to an illustrious career. Basically, George Foreman was probably happy for the opportunity to go up against a legend against whom he felt he had a really good chance being younger, stronger, faster, taller. He did seem like he had a lot going for him, except for the crowd support of Ali. Ali, yep. boom, yay. And that's when the hubris begins to drain away, right? He's not in his element anymore. Yeah, Ali really played that up. He played that into his strategy. It was all strategy and kind of faking out foreman that, that gave him the opportunity to win, right? Like he he was doing those right Right-hand leads. Yep, right-hand leads. The ineffective punch generally, but the only worked because George Foreman wasn't expecting them. Yeah, and then it infuriated him. And then he, instead of dancing and floating, he rope-a-doped. And then he basically wore Foreman out and then laid him out. (laughs) Well, spoiler. (laughs) So the reason we chose this movie, this movie review came about because we watched Andre the Giant, and I had made a reference to this movie, uh, which I've known about and, and have watched for a long time. I honestly have no recollection how this movie ended up in my collection. I must have seen it somewhere first on Mom and Dad's Cable or something, and then when picked up, picked up the movie. I don't really remember, but this was 
culturally different, significantly so, because of its setting in Africa. Uh, not only the culture there, but the music of, of America and the boxers from America and uh, how Ali kind of inspired the entire nation and had them in his corner when he went up against the champion, George Foreman. And that's kind of the power of Muhammad Ali, right? To inspire and to uh, rally the people against the champion. I mean, did these people know Muhammad Ali far and wide in Africa more than George Foreman? Or did he sort of win them over, uh, you know, in the course of being there? It seemed like both, although they did say in the doc that they knew that Muhammad Ali, as an American citizen, was refusing to fight in the Vietnam War. And they were surprised by that and pleased by that because they weren't used to seeing American cultural icons stand up against this war that I think the rest of the world thought was a waste of time or unjust. Yeah, and I think for modern historical context, being the cultural icon isn't the same now as it was then because he was an outlier and infuriated a lot of people. Elvis went to war and Muhammad Ali said, absolutely not. And he was, you know, put in jail for a while as a result. And so I think that sort of outlier quality in modern times now and resistance for the fact that he was, he didn't play by all the rules, refused to uh, obey the law and, and, w- and went to prison for his refusal to go to Vietnam, uh, the controversy of him being Muslim and, and sort of being radicalized in the, in the public consciousness alongside people like Malcolm X and uh, just sort of standing up for what he believed in. He was gregarious and verbose, and I hesitate to compare him to sort of the Kanye West of his era because I think Muhammad Ali had a lot more punch to back up his claims and his swagger, but uh, definitely someone who didn't play by the rules, and that inspired people, which kind of led me to what I was thinking about because when we did our review of Apollo 11 and we questioned whether or not the astronauts were heroes and why th- what constituted their heroism, for the first person I thought of was Muhammad Ali. And I think his ability to inspire people with his swagger and his poetry, I guess you can call it, uh, and capture the hearts of people is what made him an icon. And then using his ability and his knowledge and his cleverness to bring down the hulking silent champion is what made him a hero. Because I think the basis of heroism is inspiration for the people who would elevate someone to that position, right? Yeah, he definitely was. He he was definitely inspirational. I think with some distance, I make a lot of room for an allowance for his swagger, like his his "I'm the best" comments don't grate on me like Kanye's or Trump's. But he did seem like he had a lot to back it up. Like he really seemed to live by his convictions. And he was obviously a true athlete. The greatest of all time. And his fast jive-talking self is definitely entertaining. I could see why he kind of came front and center in the dock. Yeah, but they didn't uh, shy away either from sort of... And Howard Cosell, who was a noted sportscaster, um, didn't, you know, had a problem with Ali, found him to be insulting and, and overly confident and was really worried that, uh, that this guy was, you know, and all his ego was going to be crushed by George Foreman. You know, he feels like his sort of legacy is immortal, but then you get the guy 10 years younger and a few inches taller and longer reach and what that would do. I mean, the question was what it was going to do, how it was going to impact Ali's psyche, right? To have so much confidence and to be laid down, laid low by George Foreman. He kind of set the tone early on that all the bluster and cockiness was his way of dispelling his fear. 
he kind of got it out that way. And then, like you said, in the locker room before the big bout, his team was kind of absorbing it for him. Like insulating him? Well, they were. he was saying that they were sad. And then oh, right. Ali started doing his thing again. Like, what are we going to do? We're going to dance. I'm going to dance. We're going to dance. And then they started kind of rallying around that. And in effect, kind of absorbing that that fear that he was throwing off in this guise of cockiness or whatever. I don't know if that makes sense, but it no, seemed it, it's, it made does. sense on a vis- visceral way, in a visceral sense. I think that his colorful persona and his ability to inspire people and to get people on his wavelength, on his rhythm, is sort of a testament not only to him as a person, as a his, as a uh, historical and cultural figure, but also the sort of linchpin for this movie, bringing together all these disparate elements, like you said, sports and music and the sort of culture that's foreign to Americans, obviously, and and um, Muhammad Ali, whom with whom we could relate and with on whom we could pin our hopes. It seems like a really interesting snapshot of these icons in 74 because they obviously live on and their personas evolve. And I thought it was really interesting to see how they did. Like George Foreman became like one of the most affable, lovable, personable guys. And like my first association with George Foreman was with the George Foreman grill. Because Obviously, it, yeah. Because <laughs> it, it it came out when I was in college, and it was like the go to kitchen appliance for making making a college meal. But you know, he was like this goofy family man cook guy with like an apron and a and a kitchen appliance. And like, unfortunately, Ali to me, first impression wise, was the palsied kind of athlete who they trotted out at Olympic events and stuff. George Foreman lent his name to this grill and kind of put on a TV-ish persona. It's it's like an image that was created for him. And undoubtedly, he seems to be a really nice, affable guy. And of course, George Foreman legendarily came back in his late 40s and uh, reclaimed the title. He's the oldest person to ever reclaim his boxing championship. So he arbitrarily chose a product that uh, people wanted to, companies wanted to get his endorsement and it took off because of his cuddly persona. But uh, I remember Hulk Hogan missed a call for his sort of endorsement opportunity. And in the meantime, before he was able to get back in touch with these people, George Foreman had selected the grill. So the Hulkster got the Hulkamania blender, which sold, you know, a few units but didn't reach anywhere near the heights that the George Foreman grill did. It's sort of arbitrary in that way. The Hulkamania blender? Yeah. To make your protein smoothies? (laughs) Right. (laughs) And so one of them took off and one of them didn't. And George Foreman, as a result, became a cultural mainstay. And Hulk Hogan was relegated to reality shows, I guess. George Foreman would have made a good reality show. He's got like five sons and all of them are named George. (laughs) It's awesome. (laughs) In the documentary appeared a very eloquent, well-spoken, and endearing Spike Lee. Spike Lee definitely identifies with specifically black cultural icons of his time. Huge fan of Muhammad Ali, huge fan of Kobe Bryant. But he's like so militant now, and he was he seemed so kind of sweet and accessible as a subject in this documentary. Yep. Got me. Got angry. And then what happened with Mobutu? I don't know. Dictators get put down. That's the way it goes. When you're uh, when you're killing people just to strike fear in the heart of the populace and to send a message, 
inevitably those people are going to be put down. But obviously he didn't show up at the fight because he was worried about assassination and had had to watch uh, on the only closed circuit TV system in Zaire to sort of avoid that. Well, he certainly got his 10 million plus dollars worth out of the event, it seems like. Yeah, and that's my point. This whole thing was orchestrated not for art or for culture or for inspiration, but because Don King, who was kind of up and coming at the time and who later repped Mike Tyson and is the original dancing clown around these uh, around this sort of boxing spectacle, um, pitched and sold the fight to Mobutu and uh, and the two fighters who were going to get five million dollars each and sort of orchestrated this entire spectacle to get them down there. Uh, Soul brother number one, James Brown, B.B. King, get them all on stage for the greatest spectacle anyone had ever seen in Kinshasa. And uh, it became something more significant. It became a cultural milestone. And I think fortuitously and accidentally. It became something more than Don King perhaps intended to orchestrate. But that's not what this documentary was about. It looked like one of these people, specifically Ali, was going to his death or his demise or his downfall. Which in a way was true. It was the beginning of the end for Ali. They talked about the 20 plus fights he had after that. And it was like the first of like all of the beatings that eventually disabled him. Yeah, and I don't know if medically the fighting contributed to the Parkinson's because there are certainly lots of non-boxers who suffer from Parkinson's, but I'm sure that repeated head trauma definitely doesn't help. It's not like George Foreman didn't take his licks throughout his boxing career and is still going strong. Uh, as a matter of fact, when this one movie won the best documentary and Ali and Foreman came up on stage, George Foreman helped Ali up the stairs and uh, got him to the podium. Wow, that's wild. It's like the story goes on. Yeah, so they made up. No hard feelings, obviously. How did you feel about the idea that this was sort of a revolutionary event in Kinshasa and bringing the fight of all places to Africa and under the rule of a dictator? It would be like to a spectacle today orchestrated by Dennis Rodman or Donald Trump or something and saying, let's hold it in North Korea. The documentary, if not the event itself, is elevated with a layer of mysticism and taboo that An aura of scintillating splendor that lend it that give it some stakes that give it some drama i guess when you put it in context like that like if this if there was a modern day equivalent i guess you could you would say that it would give you some perspective on it would feel more stunty and perhaps dangerous and it probably was i mean all these people were traveling to zaire to cover the event and they ended up staying there six plus weeks longer than they intended to. But it put Zaire on the world stage, which sounds like was Mobutu's intention. Yep. This event was kind of notorious. And in today's context, it could have been perceived as dangerous. Like, But that's a criticism on the event itself and and perhaps Don King's amorality. But like the documentary itself, was there anything about it that didn't work for you? I was caught on to this movie because of the music, because of Ali's sort of vibrance, and for the fact that it came together in a doc in a way that very few documentaries have ever matched. It has that sort of swelling feeling and emotional drive and heft that a lot of them don't have. It's just sort of straight reporting. And so that's what kind of lashed on to me. It felt dangerous and strange. But I also think that because the rumble in the jungle is now a cultural milestone, this movie 
kind of lends it importance or credence after the fact. I think that the emergence of this film kind of solidified that as a historical event and how relevant it is today. Uh, the point I'm trying to make is that this movie was several years in the making. And in fact, the footage was 23 years old and nobody saw it because the Liberians who financed the original footage had their legal wranglings over, over licensing the footage and things. And so when this movie was released in 1996, there had been quite enough distance and George Foreman had come around in a, in a completely different way in our perception. Ali, unfortunately, you know, had become kind of a different person and was represented in a different way. And this movie recaptured, you know, the, the title is, is I think, well-suited for a different time and a different place, a different culture when people were different. And these, these two main competitors were different. And uh, sort of ascribing the significance to past events is the strength of this movie and why I got caught up in it. If you take a step back and you look at boxing, it's like the most brutal, primal, terrifying sport ever. And watching it as a sporting event, watching boxing as a, as a sport requires a certain suspension of I don't know what. A self-preservational instinct or something. Yeah, it's like a suspension of your understanding of or belief in your mortality. Like, it's weird how just putting it in a time context makes this a sport as opposed to a gladiatorial battle. I mean, it's just such a brutal sport, and it really requires that you suspend your understanding of how brutal it is to get to the story beyond it. Part of the spectacle is what takes away from the intimate brutality of two people beating each other to where sometimes boxers die, you know, but to have tens of thousands of people screaming and musicians and things, it's like it could have been Rocky Four. But I think that because of the buffer of time, it's different and it feels padded and insulated and safer to sort of take it with a level of joy and excitement at seeing one man beat another down. Because I would argue that if you take away the music take away James Brown and the, the crowds and you watch a YouTube video of two guys in a garage punching each other to death, it doesn't have the same sort of soaring heroic elements. So Leon Gast, the director, white dude, do you think that there was any element of like looking in at black culture? I think that if Spike Lee had directed this documentary, there would be a lot of different elements in it. There would be a lot the same. I doubt that Norman Mailer and George Plimpton would have showed up as boxing authorities. I think that Gast really likes the sport of boxing. He's made subsequent boxing documentaries, none as high profile as this. Also, he eventually made the music movie, B.B. King in Africa. But I think that he took this footage, which was available to him, and wove a convincingly culturally accurate, I suppose. I mean, it's difficult to say from from my perspective, but I think he told a tale very well. And I think there were some standouts like George Plimpton and, and uh, Norman Mailer who wouldn't have been included in a Spike Lee version or a decidedly more, quote, authoritative black perspective on this movie. Likewise, I think that we got the sense that Don King was kind of a clown and was kind of a hustler and devoid of the sort of morality that might have made this, uh, you know, somehow different. He definitely had the access and it was a it was insight into black culture of the time. But it is worth noting that there's so much footage available and they carved something out, you know, at only 90 minutes or so uh, that was emotionally compelling. 
but this was pared down from over 400 hours of footage, you know, from a white director with white commentators, but it was enough. It was a, it was culturally sensitive or appropriate enough that they got Spike Lee on board, who I'm sure if he had any qualms about it, wouldn't have had any, pro, any part in it whatsoever. I never asked why about this documentary. It was imbued with importance. And yet what bearing does it have on us in 2020? It brings us back to the heroism question, right? Why is it significant as a cultural historical moment? But what is really important about one guy beating another guy in a fight? That's Muhammad Ali's trade. It is the way by which he ascended to prominence. And that was his vehicle and sort of the way that singers, actors feel that they can voice their opinions, uh, Mark Ruffalo, and impact society culturally beyond what their sort of trade is. So Muhammad Ali's ability to inspire is more influential and important than his boxing career of wins or losses. Because culturally speaking, aside from Joe Lewis, beating George Foreman was the pinnacle of his career. And afterwards, he started to decline. And unfortunately, his health suffered. But in terms of cultural impact, this was the moment when he galvanized all his sort of rhetoric and persona and then made good on his word on his promise and it added legitimacy to everything else he was saying about tooth decay and staying in school and not fighting arbitrary wars because the man says you're supposed to and don't do dope what he's saying has a ring of truth that he he's not just bluster he's conviction yeah he used his platform of beating other people down as a means of lifting other people up like he he cared about his people, he cared about his culture and, and and you know talking simply as he did after the fight staying up all night and just talking to the Africans and telling them, you know, you're better people than we are. We have this, we have that and you live a simpler, more humble, uh, more meaningful life. You know, a man of the people who really believe these things and this fight gave him the opportunity to have people listen. It gave weight to his messages. Oh, Wes, you give all kind of meaning to his me-we poem. So, does this get one of your rare, perfect movie totallys? Uh, this comes close to being a perfect movie. It's a documentary. Was it a better move not to put an ailing Muhammad Ali on camera for interview? That we remember him in his glory? Yeah, I think it wasn't relevant to the story that was at hand. And I thought it was totally appropriate to end with him dancing in the streets of Africa yeah. in his and prime. And likewise, George Foreman, if you see him all happy and ultra rich in his suit, smiling and laughing in 1996, it may have taken away from, you know, him being sort of broken down and going into a, a deep depression. And, uh, and then they gave him his coda of him having, you know, being a fabulous person in American life. But uh, yeah, no, I, I really love this movie. It's, it's one of the few documentaries that move me as emotionally as a dramatic motion picture. This film connected me to a culture that I was largely unaware of. And I was moved by the music and the magic and the rhythm and the dangerous secrecy of what Zaire was at the time. And the rating is? Totally. A knockout. A knockout. And yours? Yeah, definitely a good. When We Were Kings, definitely a good and a film that is spanning many years at this point, from 1974 to 1996 to, th to 2020, and yet again immortalized in or whatever movies. You heard it from Wes, totally. You heard it from Iris, 
Good, that's our talk on When We Were Kings. We'd love to hear what you have to say. Please give us a call, 818-835-0473 or whatevermovies at gmail.com. Thanks for listening. And we'll see you next time. And we'll see you next time. <laughs> Ali, Bumaye. Ali, Bumaye. Ali, Bumaye. Welcome to Transforming 45, the podcast that celebrates the incredible power of passionate voices. I'm your host, Lisa Boat. Join me in conversation with heart-led humans who share their deeply personal stories of transformation. Transforming 45 is here to uplift, connect, and remind you that it's never too late to write your next chapter. So get ready to be inspired, empowered, and transformed. Join me in this community where through powerful storytelling, we heal and reclaim our inherent magic. Electric acid. Electric acid. Welcome to the Candle Power Hour. Come with us backstage behind the scenes of show business spanning over four decades and bringing you the experiences that can only be told by the people who were there. Our guests are from the A-list, the F-list, and everyone in between. Get set for some of the most insane, hilarious, and inspiring stories you will ever hear. I'm Mercury. And I'm Diego. Your host for the, the Candle, Candle Power, Power Hour. Hour. Electric acid.